This is Two Girls, One Mike, the show that talks about the holes and plot holes of your favorite porn. Welcome to Two Girls, One Mike, the porncast where we want to remind you that yelling fuck during sex is the same as yelling parkour when you're doing parkour. I'm your host, Alice Vaughn, and with me is my gorgeous co-host today, Natalia Reagan. Natalia, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, and I do yell parkour when I do parkour. I feel like it adds to the experience. Uh, also, I'm usually nude when I'm doing parkour, so that also adds to the experience and the arrests. <laughs> Anyways, I'm doing fabulous. Thanks again for having me. I normally yell parkour when I'm doing sex and uh, fuck when I'm doing parkour, so it works out. Balances. It really does. It balances out. Parkour's painful. Right? Yeah. Sex can be painful, too, but parkour, eh, you know, quads and whatnot. Can you use lube in parkour? Probably not. Um... <laughs> I found some interesting uses for lube, and uh, it's great for a slip and slide, and parkour, I think, engages slip and slides occasionally, so. Not great for children's parties. I'm talking about adult slip and slides. Or bounce houses, but adult bounce houses, preferably shaped like boobs. <laughs> I know the Museum of Sex at one point in New York City did have yes. um, a bounce house with a breast that you could jump on. Gosh, it's been so long since I've been to the Museum of Sex in New York, though. Can I give a shout out to a, a, a fan favorite or a Two Girls, One Mike favorite who I went to the Museum of Sex with and bounced around in the boob room? Yes. BJ Kramer. <laughs> B.J. Kramer. First of all, his name is B.J. Gotta love that. What? Second, uh, yeah, last name Kramer. He's from New York, so there you have it. But we we bounced around in the, you know, it was very titillating. Just a bunch of boobies flailing about. It was nice. I want to know, where does one purchase inflatable tits to jump on? Look, I mean, I know on Alibaba I can purchase anything or get the manufacturer. Actually, I probably could do that. All I have to do is figure out probably who imported the tits and then I could reverse engineer the manufacturer. Yeah, I could do this. I know. We got this. We got this. And then I could resell them on Amazon. Absolutely. I was going to say, I was going to check and see if inflatable boobs... We're on, um, I have a feeling it's just going to be a picture of an inflatable Ted Cruz. <laughs> That's a, an American politics joke about a very idiotic man. Can I make a request? If you manage to find one, I would love to um, have an inflatable boob sent over to Australia. Yes. I would love it. And we are going overseas today because we have a guest that I am so excited to have on. Esme James, you're a kink historian, and I'm so happy that you joined our show today. From tomorrow, no less. <laughs> I know. I, it's crazy. Is the future as bleak as it is today? Look, I can't say it's looking much brighter. However, I have just found out that I am getting an inflatable boob bouncy castle. So things are looking up. Definitely so. It uh, doesn't get much better than that, to be honest. That was stipulated as part of your contract on coming on the show. Absolutely. And if it wasn't, I'm adding it in. Yes, and I'm so excited. Uh, when when Alice first told me about a kink historian and then I saw your your TikTok channel, I was like, yeah, this is going to be fucking amazing. Because <laughs> uh, who doesn't love some historical kink? You've got some great uh, videos up there. Everyone should check them out. I'm just going to plug you up top because seriously, it was fantastic. I can't wait to hear all that you can say. I, it has, I, I wonder if there has been an inflatable boove room in history, but maybe instead of an inflatable, they were just sewn together with carpets. Just, you know, fashioned with uh, bits of rags. 
I'm seeing the kind of like Pride and Prejudice um, carpeted wallpaper, but instead of the nice velvet, we're just getting some like nice little juicy tits on the wall. I think yes. if that hasn't happened yet, I want it. That is the aesthetic I'm going for here. <laughs> oh my goodness. So the sex museum in Barcelona, actually, um, so they don't have inflatable tits on a wall. However, they have, you know how you mount like a steer's head on a wall after conquering it or a bull's head? <laughs> so they have a number of different plaques like that. I want to venture at 50 to 100 plaques like that, but they're all cocks. <gasps> I, I was going to say, like, what? where are you going with this? Is the heads of ex-lovers or what's going on here? Um, but no, we're going cocks, okay? <laughs> Welcome to my ween wall. <laughs> Instead of, like, Wally world, it's weenus world. I just, uh, I was just talking about this with my partner about just, you know, there are, like, penises are like snowflakes, just like boobs are like <laughs> snowflakes. No two are exactly the same, even on the same woman. But wieners, you know... Good on you. You're very unique, and I, I respect that. So, And I'm glad that Barcelona is uh, <laughs> sending them up in the proper way. Paying tribute to it. They also have a five-foot golden penis you can ride on, I guess. Maybe I shouldn't have. I don't know if I was technically allowed to do that. But. <laughs> Alice, are you wanted in the country of Spain? <laughs> Cuidado. <laughs> Un hembra. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, I could just see you getting arrested. But that would be a wonderful way to, you know, go to jail. I mean, I don't know. If I'm going to go to jail in a foreign country, I think it's going to be riding a golden penis. It doesn't get much better than that. It's a little story from grandma in the future. What's the craziest thing you've ever done? Well. (laughs) (laughs) One time I got arrested. (laughs) I was going to say, because in Australia, I mean, do you have a museum of sex? I feel like a dork. I don't know exactly which city you're in. Are you in... Sydney, are you in Melbourne? I am in Melbourne. I'm in Melbourne. And okay. I can't say that we have a sex museum that I know of. Um, and I, I, I would be pretty upset if I didn't know about it, to be honest. <laughs> and I wasn't running it at this stage. Because you're going to start it. We're your friends in the future coming to you to let you know you're going to start it. Phenomenal. We have the interior design. We have the boob wall. We have the little uh, male member wall. Um, and yeah. we have our little inflatable boobs for the kids to play on. Um, so I think we've got everything that uh, a museum actually needs um, <laughs> to kind of go <laughs> from here. Fantastic. <laughs> There's one guy in Melbourne listening to this named Stu. And he's like, I have a museum. It's in my basement. <laughs> it's unregulated. Come but visit it's on it. Atlas Obscura. <laughs> Stu's actually one of the uh, male members I have on my wall, so maybe I've stolen his collection. I'm so sorry. Sorry, Stu. Oops. (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) So how long have you been a kink historian for? I have been a kink historian, I think, for the better part of the last five years. Um, Accidentally, really. It was one of those things where you kind of follow uh, your interests down a specific tangent time and time again. You find yourself in this like little niche hole that everyone kind of wants to put you into and you finally just say, fuck it. That is my hole. I will live here. And I love it. (laughs) I absolutely love it. I'm so thankful that there is someone like yourself who is outward, who can educate people, because a lot of people of today assume, oh no, of, you know, of years past, people were prudish. No, they weren't. 
No, absolutely. And I think um, one of the uh, things I'm so passionate about in terms of actually doing this is that we definitely have a big tendency when we look into sexual history of the past, either to idolize these ancient, you know, sexually liberal cultures or to really undermine how sexually promiscuous we were. And I don't think either position is necessarily correct. Um, And that's, you know, a huge part of my work is to kind of do the work in correcting that, uh, in saying that, you know, we had problems when we were sexually liberal and when we were very closed off and conservative. That wasn't great either. Like, there was two sides of history and we're in such a unique position at the moment to kind of look back and be like, we've always just been human. We've always just been sexual creatures. And uh, now we have the access to kind of like education and everything where we can be a lot more ethical and promiscuous at the same time. And it's a fantastic place to be. Yeah, and not always get chlamydia every time you do, you know? Like, that's talk about the joys of modern-day technology. <laughs> well, I mean, we're in Australia, and all our koalas really have chlamydia. Yep. So um, <laughs> I don't know about the chlamydia front. Uh, the koalas are just catching up. <laughs> I'm going to start a new campaign, prophylactics for the koalas. They have the smoothest brains. Save the koalas. Although <laughs> that's not necessarily how they're catching it. Um yeah, every time someone goes to Australia, I always say, watch out for the chlamydia koalas. And then it, it I told Neil deGrasse Tyson once that in an, an email and it, it did turn into, what? What? Are you okay? Most people, I feel like, underestimate how dumb koalas are, though. I mean, aside from they are chlamydia ridden, which is very true. Um, so are a lot of us. Uh, fair. <laughs> and fair. we're lazy okay. as well and we sleep a lot. <laughs> Yeah, we're not even marsupials. I mean, <laughs> however, though, they are so smooth brained, and that is a, on a serious note where if you gave them their favorite plant to eat, eucalyptus, just picked off in front of them, they wouldn't know what to do with it unless it was on a branch. They're <laughs> like, oh, I don't know how to eat this. This is on a plate. It's always quite funny. I mean, when uh, people do come over for their, like, their tourist experience in Australia and everyone goes to hug koalas and stuff. I don't, yeah, I don't think people realize um, just how placile they're going to be. Like. You're not going to have a, you know, a discussion about Jane Eyre, for example, or, uh, you know, William S. Boros. It's not going to be something um, <laughs> transcendent, but um, you are going to probably gaze into the eyes of a not quite sentient beast that may have chlamydia. That may have chlamydia. Don't let it bite you. <laughs> Do not let it bite you. <laughs> I'm from Los Angeles, and the LA Zoo has koalas that they would keep out at night in their enclosure until one night, one of our local mountain lions wanted a little little mentholatum drop and had them had themselves a, a koala. Oh no! And now they keep them inside. But I felt so bad because I could just see the koala being like, "Hey there, friend. You look nice." <laughs> Do you want to hug me too? And then it's, you know, bye-bye, lights out for... Mr. Cuddly Bear, bye. No, poor, poor buddy. I know, it's it's kind of, it's a bummer. But yeah, I, I, I've never been to Australia. I, I've always wanted to go. Obviously, there's jokes about everything there wanting to kill you in terms of the snakes and the spiders and the cane toads and the koalas. You get used to it. Right? Do you have a favorite story or uh, like a kink history moment for your continent? 
I don't know about favourite, but I, I think it's quite interesting that we have, like, just where I am in, uh, like, the Melbourne CBD, there's um, a suburb called Fitzroy, and it used to be historically, like, some of the first, like, queer clubs and um, gay kind of underground um, buildings and everything. And it's uh, we still have all of those buildings there, and it's so fun because it's now um, kind of kept its same rap as being this very indie, fun, cool, uh, queer-accepting area. And you can just kind of walk through it. And, you know, a lot of our buildings uh, in Australia don't have too much history attached. And just seeing this and where this kind of queer subculture started and um, is amazing. Other than that, we have some great things uh, from our like famous writers that everyone knows about. I mean, I don't know if you guys know people like Banjo Patterson and stuff who writes a lot of our kind of very Aussie poems. Big over here. You have to, you, you know his stuff in primary school. Banjo. High school. Banjo. Banjo Patty. Um, <laughs> Um, but he has all of these like affairs with other uh, famous Australian writers oh. like Miles Franklin and stuff. And there's this whole like literary romance that we had going on. So I find that very enjoyable, to be honest. No, that sounds hot. You know, speaking of queer culture and kind of mm-hmm. uh, an emerging underground, what I didn't know until today when I was listening to one of your TikToks is that Buckingham Palace had <laughs> formerly a gay uh, brothel? Yes. Hello, I didn't know this. And why didn't they not continue this? Come on. Or have they? They surprisingly don't put it on the tour. Like when you're going around why London. Why has Meghan Markle like... not spoken out about this? <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, it's so interesting as well because where um, this would have been, which was um, on the Mulberry Gardens, which is now the site of the royal residence, in Buckingham Palace, um, this park, basically when you had the Civil War, was taken over as um, when the army kind of stayed there and they had food wagons coming through and all of these sex workers and stuff. There's one historical document that basically like talks about the, his experience being there and he talks about um, Spin Trees um, who used to come there and that was the name of a male sex worker. So not only was it like a brothel that was running on the Mulberry Gardens, it was specifically a gay brothel and that just kind of gets erased you know 70 years later but 70 years of potentially having a brothel on Buckingham Palace and we've just kind of forgotten that (laughs) more like fucking ham palace (laughs) am I right oh the queen hasn't forgotten it she's lived through it I'm just waiting for Lizzie to make a statement (laughs) I could just see the queen being like there can only be one queen yeah. <laughs> All of you must go. Get out. It's me. That's why I love so much about what, um, you know, a lot of my uh, work or research has kind of done, because you see this other side of history that we've tried to kind of brush over and make look so pretty and proper, and it never was. And finding right. these, like, really fun <laughs> stories, like Buckingham Palace. Buckingham Palace, I love that so much. And just kind of putting <laughs> that back into history. Uh, you know, these people that you think are so high and above you and everything, you know, it was was a gay brothel. <laughs> they were RuPaul in it way before. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I'm a primatologist. I study monkeys and apes. Um, that's my other day job. I teach biological anthropology. And one of the things that often happens when we talk about homosexuality in the animal kingdom is a lot of times uh, things that have been, uh, that are very obviously gay activity, whether it's like, you know, uh, a male orangutan has put his <laughs> mouth on the penis of another male orangutan. It's described they were good as friends. a- They were just <laughs> friends. This was, they were settling a bet. 
It was just a bet. That's it. Or like it's a dominance thing. It's always explained away (laughs) rather than maybe they're a little gay or maybe they just like the way it feels. Like there's just this resistance, as you can imagine. Mm. They were close roommates. Right, exactly. (laughs) They shared a branch, okay? (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, that's why more than anything, I think it's important who does the science really does inform the science because Mm. finally once people who maybe are not, you know, completely closeted or homophobic, start doing science. They're like, yo, I recognize that. I was doing that with uh, my roommate last night. Uh, This is very gay behavior, and that's cool, and that's fine, because we found that, you know, there's over 1,500 species documented engaging in in either, you know, male-on-male, female-on-female, a promiscuous horde of sorts. And it's fantastic. But again, yeah, I mean, nothing is puritanical. It's a pipe dream. But it's very interesting, isn't it? Like there's so many species of mammals that come under the spectrum of being queer, like a huge portion. It's like the near majority that you could be like, no, no. (laughs) It's just so fascinating because I think when these facts come out now, it's always quite shocking to people being like, oh, my God, penguins might be gay. No, like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, that's why it's like it's, it's wild that we think that this time now we're the most sexually liberated when we know throughout history mm. there's been bouts of like, you know, again, promiscuous hordes and orgies and, <laughs> you know, or, hey, hey, Jim, good to see you at the, the post office. You're going to be at the orgy this weekend? Cool. See you there, you know, like. <laughs> I wonder how many researchers are out there where we know that there's like 1,500, I want to say, mam- uh, mammalian species that have exhibited, you know, gay behavior. I wonder how many of those where it's like uh, someone looked at the behavior and said, no, nah, they're just good friends. Oh, I'm sure. I have to double check, but I think the 1500 does span other um, groups of animals, not just mammals. But I do think that, you know, again, you know, what exactly is considered sexual? You know, you have to ask that question. And also, I've been asked before, like, you know, can animals be gay? It's like, well, you can't necessarily ask them, excuse me, um, you know, Roy, Silo, two penguins that, you know, lived at the Central Park Zoo, are, do you identify as gay? You know, I mean, like, they kind of just love who they love, which is fantastic, you know? But they need a label. Yeah, right. Well, we like to compartmentalize. That's a, that's a human thing. We're like, put it in a box. Like, oh, I really enjoyed your TikTok on third genders because that's something as an anthropologist, we know that, but a lot of people don't. Mm. And it's, I'm glad that you brought that up. And if you want to talk a little bit about that, that would be great. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think it's such a fascinating concept because, um, you know, having delved into this kind of area of research for so long, there's a lot of facts like that that I just kind of take as universal truth now that everyone knows and assumes it. Um, And it actually happened, you know, I was talking about uh, Roman brothels at one stage and was talking about the various um, sex workers that they had there. And I was like, you know, they... they, they, We need um, to circle back to that for two seconds afterwards, (laughs) but continue. Yes, please. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but, you know, when, when they were talking about their, like, client menus and stuff, and I was saying, you know, you, they usually had uh, sex workers that were male, uh, female, and, you know, a third sex. And everyone's like, what's a third sex? And I was like, oh, okay. I, I just kind of, you know, f- forget. Um, but, you know, going back through history and uh, looking at most ancient cultures, especially, like, I think it's a more of a Western idea that we have this binary, which is, you know, uh, something that's quite modern. But there's nearly all always a third, sometimes even fourth category of gender um, the whole time. And this either means um, someone who's completely devoid of gender or other times it will mean someone who's, you know, 
overflowing with gender. So there's two very kind of interesting definitions that get played with a lot. And going through and kind of finding all of the various words that were used for a third sex uh, throughout history and, you know, places where um, they've still uh, continued, like uh, Southern Mexico has uh, mujer, um, which is, oh, mujer, sorry, which means uh, someone who was born male, but presents as female and that's still in use or uh there's one in native uh, hawaiian uh, which i believe is pronounced mahu and that is um someone as well who's this kind of like overflowing gender and they have um all these spiritual and cultural roles within their society but a lot of these uh as I kind of spoke about briefly in the the TikTok, a a lot of these cultures and these traditions get very much wiped away when um, the whole spout of colonization happens, like most bad things happen and start with colonization. And we kind of lose this. Excuse you, but we brought slavery. Is that not enough? (laughs) (laughs) Where's the gratitude? We haven't done well. We made you more efficient at the expense of (laughs) other people. Everything else. uh, No, and it's uh, something that I think we're still trying to reclaim because, you know, obviously that that statement, uh, history is written by the victors. And that is so prevalent that we um, now, and I think a lot of historians, academics, artists, and also just activists are kind of going back to these um, reminiscences that we have, you know, historical documents and artifacts and being like, no, no, no. (laughs) Prior to this kind of uh, 17th, 18th century, it's always been here. It's always been here. And we need to put it back into history and also just back into today, really. It was shocking for me to learn from you that um, this dates back all the way to Samaria, Mesopotamia, Mm. in works and literature of that, that, you know, there is reference to a third and a fourth gender, Mm -hmm. which frankly surprised me. I mean, I I knew that it was written about in history, but I assumed, just like any other, you know, average person, that this was a modern-day concept, but it wasn't. No. And I think that's what's so shocking about it to us and why um, my entire kind of philosophy around this area of study is that we can learn to accept and become so much more empowered with our sexualities now if we can actually see ourselves within history. And those kind of scraps of knowledge and information to be like, no, this isn't an identity crisis that we're going through. No, these were identifications that have always been here. And it's no um, coincidence that nearly every single kind of ancient culture had some kind of definition or different categories of gender. Um, Two was never enough. Um, And so that's, you know, where a lot of our internal crises come from today with that struggle to kind of find where you fit in the binary. But we were never meant to do that. (laughs) I remember realizing probably at age 18, the first anthropology class learning about the hedras in India and just, Mm. you know, and then Two-Spirit. I have a friend that identifies as Two-Spirit who is Native Canadian. and, And just, you know, realizing that this idea of binary opposition is a really kind of fantasy land for the Western culture that wants to put everything in a box. You know, you're either black or white, good, bad, straight, gay, male, female, and it's there's a spectrum in there. And I think that's really important. And when you realize there's a spectrum, that also allows so much freedom to walk among that spectrum. Because when you have these sort of boxes that you have to fit in, you feel like you can't experiment or get creative. And I mean, like you said, it's just, it's freeing mm-hmm. than more than anything. But unfortunately, especially I think in, I know Australia is no stranger to this, in very conservative groups, freedom is frightening, mm-hmm. you know? Absolutely. Now, circling back for two seconds to Rome, uh, (laughs) 
I'm sorry. Do you want to circle back? <laughs> because I know sex work was legal in Rome, and maybe you know historically why, because I do not. In one of your videos, you did reference how people did transactions. And I actually had the pleasure of weeks ago, merely weeks ago, seeing some of the coins people did transactions with. Oh, fantastic. So because sex work was uh, legal in Rome and there were a number of brothels, um, you know, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, uh, there are a number of ways people needed to communicate with the sex workers and not everybody was necessarily literate. So on one end, there would be a token uh, denominating the cost and the other would be the action. And actually, if you're ever in Las Vegas in the Erotic Heritage Museum, which we've had former curator uh, Victoria Hartman on the show, they have a whole collection of these various coins. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. Were you able to, out of curiosity, figure out why sex work was legal in Rome? I haven't been able to figure it out. I'm scratching my head. I mean, there's a a number of reasons. Obviously, we did have Roman slaves, so it's not all kind of, you know, uh, flowery, um, fun Mm. sexual liberty. Uh, A lot of people who were sex workers were slaves. And then other times Mm. people opted into it. So you don't have as much of a distinction for women within the sex work world. It wasn't seen as something that was necessarily that degrading. So sometimes you would actually have a lot of women who, um, well, we think anyway, who may have joined these brothels as a way of kind of getting some kind of um, autonomy financially. For men, it's a little bit different because there is a tendency, um, and this is ancient Greece as well, that for men, if you were um, a sex worker and you allowed yourself to be penetrated, that was always seen as very like emasculating. So there was this kind of like lower category of man that kind of came about, the man who allowed himself to be penetrated. And that was something that was very like, uh, even back then, very shameful to do, but you could do it. (laughs) It was just kind of like you gave yourself a scarlet letter as being a bottom. And that was almost what the system was. But yet there is a big link of slavery, but not everyone who was working in brothels and as sex workers were slaves. And sex has a very interesting like role within a lot of these ancient civilizations in terms of the fact sometimes we just don't care. It was just a part of life as, um, you know, food and shelter. It's just a category of need. So that's also where you see a lot more of the sexual liberty come about. We don't, and until that kind of like rise of Christianity in like the 17th, 18th century, again, we don't see that very taboo um, degradation of sex work as we kind of know it now. Yeah, it seems like um, once there seems to be more religiosity that enters a culture, at, at that point, people kind of pull back and say, well, this was fun. However, yeah. I don't feel comfortable anymore. Um, so, for example, whether it be the banning of sex toys on market in, in European markets um, mm-hmm. in the 16th century or actually... The video that drew me to you, hands down, was a video regarding, uh, I want to say, European divorces in the 16th or Uh, 17th century. Yeah. Impotency trials. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. So so for our listeners who don't know. (laughs) Tell us more. Tell us more. Um, No, it's a fantastic story now um, because I think in a lot of ways things are still quite funny. So around uh, that kind of uh, 16th century France, it was really, really hard to obtain divorces. And when we have that rise of religion happening, one of the um, things that was acceptable in order to grant you a divorce was like failure to gain children. Uh, So failure of the man to 
perform was one of the key reasons of which you could be granted a divorce. And this obviously, you know, the church is sanctioned saying that the reason for marriage is procreation, la 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 la. So then you have to find ways in order to challenge this in court. So basically what would happen at first is that the man would be taken to court and in front of this jury, would just have to wank off. Like, that's what was happening in front of a crowd. And he's just there doing his business. And they're kind of judging, yep, yep, he did it. Congratulations. Like, he can give children divorce not granted. Um, But if he, you know, failed to perform, as most men did during that preliminary trial, um, talk about performance anxiety, (laughs) what would then happen is that you get this team of doctors, surgeons, and midwives who sit around a chosen location. Sometimes that's the husband's and wife's actual marital bed. Sometimes it was um, a place like um, one of their bathhouses or something like that, a kind of neutral territory decided by both the man and the wife, in which they copulate in front of a crowd of people um, all of the midwives and everything oh it's very kinky it's definitely um, it's voyeurism at its finest and so while they're getting it on and the doctors are going like yep yep good stamina outside uh, the chosen place Generally, you had crowds that started to develop uh, because this was around the same time that um, pamphlets and everything were becoming really popular and people (laughs) could kind of get their news and their gossip and everything. Or town criers would come and make songs about what was going on. You know, Jack and Jill are getting it on kind of thing. Come, Come watch. Um, And so it became this public entertainment where, you know, you would have hundreds of people outside kind of choosing sides, placing bets, a lot of songs, uh, you know, everyone would kind of join in like you do it, you know, like a football game or something and you sing your team song. That's what was happening. Um, And then the, you know, husband and wife would kind of have to leave the building uh, being like, yeah, I did it. (laughs) No, I didn't do it. And it was just... Yikes. Yeah, it's such an interesting period of time. (laughs) I just like to think of how many couples chose to do this because this was their kink. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, hey, should we try to get divorced again? Do you want to get divorced again? Let's get divorced again. Absolutely. And it's so interesting because we have this obsession uh, with voyeurism, I think, hugely around this period of time. Um, And then my um, kind of like main area where uh, my my PhD thesis kind of focuses on uh, that 17th to 18th century intersection where pornography gets defined as a genre. And this obsession with voyeurism just pulls through. We love it. (laughs) We absolutely love it. And we always have. That is fantastic. You know, as a capitalist, I know that if I had existed during that time, I would have been profiting off these trials. Oh, yeah. I would have been absolutely selling T-shirts of I'm on her side or his side or taking (laughs) bets 110%. I know this of myself. I would have been doing commentary. And now he's touching her inner thigh with his left. (laughs) She just bit her thumb at him. What does that mean? I mean, I just love the idea of the uh, the pamphlets. Like we were getting, mm. we were getting junk mail back then. But junk mail about couples doing it, junk mail about junk mail. Yeah, like exact, exact, make it literal junk mail. That's fantastic. 
You know what's also interesting about divorce? I found out actually, funny enough, so back in, I want to say, 1916 United States, New York was the center where adultery was the easiest grounds for divorce. Mm. So attorneys, funny enough, would create a package where you can have a prostitute and a photographer. Wow. That is wonderful. Uh-huh. <laughs> because adultery was one of the ways in which you could file for a divorce because it is a fault of one of the parties. We didn't have no fault divorce at that point. It just wasn't a thing until literally the 1960s. So wow. you could get a, that specific package where you could get a sex worker and a photographer. <laughs> I wonder if the judges were sitting there like, why are these all so high quality? Why have they all got such perfect lighting in their houses? Crazy. <laughs> It's in black and white mode. Do you think anyone was anal about the lighting? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Give me my good angle. <laughs> if I'm going to be adulterous, I want to look hot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, 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 no. You know what's uh, the priorities. You're going to get busted for something like that. That is wild. And you know it was predominantly males who were paying for this. So you know <laughs> that a handful of them were saying, um, my junk doesn't look big enough in this photo. Can you retake it? Oh, my it? God. <laughs> Can we just lower the lighting a little? <laughs> I want a prostitute with very small hands. I'm talking baby hands. <laughs> Do you have baby hands, McGee? <laughs> I want baby hands, McGee. Okay, I'm ready. Let's go. <laughs> oh, dear oh, God. Top-rated sex worker, smallest hands on the market. Oh, no, I had those, like, Trump baby hands in my desk. I'm very annoyed I can't find my baby here. They come in handy, if you know what I mean. I love that um, you just have them at your desk. That's that's great. I've got a lot of weird shit on my desk right now. My uh, desk is currently uh, covered in porn, uh, and that is no lie. <gasps> this is, is great. It, yeah, there is uh, 20 pornographic books right in front of me, and I generally always forget that when people like come around and kind of like, oh, can I have a tour of the house? And I'm like, yeah, look at my porn. I have a Dia de los Muertos uh, stripper uh, <laughs> that I bought many, many years ago uh, in Mexico that uh, I love dearly. So but wonderful. yeah, it's it's like porn, but not nearly as cool. I don't know if you can see these images, but... Um, I see a leg spread. Girls, they are, in all of these, we, we love some curves and some rolls and body yeah. fat. And I love this. Like this is around like the 18th century porn. And I think height of porn. Absolute height upon. We we love to see the rose. <laughs> it's great. They like them. This is fantastic. I've years I've been trying to get rid of them. I know. No, they love them. They absolutely yeah. love them. <laughs> and I love how. I mean, look, we're we're starting to get back into that with body positivity, and you have so many more workers. I mean, mm-hmm. frankly, I know sex workers where it's like, okay wait a minute, you're a BBW and you make how much? And wait, a guy gifted you a house? Okay, maybe I'm in the wrong profession. I um, screwed up. I made a mistake. (laughs) Clearly. But I love that we have so much artistic value in where we see Mm. women with roles, where we see, yeah, a woman ate and she was wealthy because we can prove she ate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, so years ago, I made a video about the evolution of boobs in women and called The Story of Boobs, The Breast Tale Ever Told. And, you know, it only 
covered a couple of theories about why women have breasts. And one of them was as we became bipedal, walking on two legs instead of four, you could no longer see sexual swellings because our closest genetic relatives, chimpanzees and bonobos, have these big old keisters, but it's not really their keister, it's their vulva. So it shifted to the top. But there's also this idea that breasts are also an honest indicator of age. And mm. also a lot of times, you know, uh, and, and same with like the rest of the body, if you're able to pack on some pounds, that means that you can possibly survive a famine. So I'm going <laughs> to want that lady on my team when the famine strikes because she's going to survive. Um, but also just even if you look at, and this is unfortunate, and I'm, I'm hoping that there's going to be a shift away from this. If you look at the past like 120 years, there have been shifts in what is considered in in terms of female body type, which I think is fucked up to begin with. But like in times of economic downturn, the Great Depression, um, any sort of uh, recession, you see uh, kind of the more voluptuous body type is mm. favored versus, you know, you can never be too rich or too thin. Oh my God, the 90s, waves, yay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or the 60s. Oh my God, we've got Twiggy. So LA or New York Fashion Week, yeah. Uh, yes, yeah. thank you. <laughs> but I, I do, I, and I actually just did a podcast earlier today talking about, he asked me because I used to be an actress in my 20s in the late 90s, early 2000s, and I like wouldn't eat for two weeks before a headshot shoot because I thought like that's what you had to do. And that's so sick mm. and twisted. And so I, I think that by presenting the history of porn and the history of what is considered attractive and has been considered attractive and what is attractive, regardless of what, you know, the media wants to tell you, because what do they know? Um, they're just <laughs> trying to make money. I think that can only be a positive thing. So I'm grateful for someone like you showing the world this is what's been going on forever. Forever. Um, no, absolutely. And I, I think it's so interesting in terms of what we do classify as the perfect standard for female beauty is always in opposition for what's easily attainable at the time. So even something like the, you know, that, that 20s when um, something like uh, tuberculosis or that, that kind of look of the, oh, let's go to like the Moulin Rouge kind of era, the mm -hmm. look of someone who's pale and towards death. That's beautiful. That is, you know, people, women were giving themselves tuberculosis to look beautiful um no. like stop yes yes yes, oh, yes. Dear god yes women would deliberately try and catch it even though you know that gives you a year to live because you look beautiful and all of the time we change these standards I, it's, it's a very interesting period of time there's some fantastic writings on it but especially for women, how we set the standard gives them something that's really quite impossible to attain to continue to work towards. Yeah. And it's this fantastic way to kind of keep women constantly oppressed. <laughs> down, girl, down. down. Yeah, Absolutely. When we have yeah. enough food, we need to be nice and skinny. And when it's really hard to get right. food, you need to be fat. Like it's yep. all of these kind of things. And again, I think it's around the 17th century that our obsession with body image changes, but... <laughs> Yeah. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So I'm seeing a trend. Uh, right now, most people, millennials, Gen Z, wherever mm -hmm. that you know fraction is, <laughs> we're really into curvy people, and we can't afford shit. So I get it. I yeah. get why we're into curves right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is the worry there that they're trying to bring low-rise jeans back, and I'm not for no, that. No, no, <laughs> no, no. I lived it's through that. I, li I, I. <laughs> Oh my God. I was just talking to somebody. I did a half an hour of abs every morning while watching the Today Show from yeah. like 1999 to 2003 yeah. <laughs> to fit into those dumb jeans that that just touched my pubes. Like not okay. <laughs> 
so sick. I think that's kind of like the joy and uh, sadness of being a TikToker is that you do see and get a lot of interaction with the younger generation. And when I'm watching their videos, I'm uh, when when all this trend came back with the low rise jeans and also um, just a lot of uh, 2000s fashion is making yes. a resurgence. I'm like, girl, <laughs> no, no, you do not want this. Someone, someone put on a dress and jeans the other day. No. And it was actually <gasps> no. Tisdale vibes. You don't want it. You don't know what we went through. You don't know what we went through. That's not fun. <laughs> Skinny no. scarf is next. Skin, you know, <laughs> but they yeah. keep bringing back belt, trends from belt. the early 2000s and 1990s. We don't expect like Taliban didn't expect it. Didn't expect no. it. No, no. no oh there's some God. trends that didn't need to stop. I mean, yeah. I find this very fascinating in terms of even all of the conversation uh, today. And it's something I really passionately believe is that history is so cyclical. Like the whole time we are just going in circles. We are going in circles. And I think a huge part of that is just because like we just don't talk about stuff. Um, like if we had uh, <laughs> said to the Gen Zs, low rise jeans, you won't understand it now, but never do it. Never do it. Um, as like a very classic example, but <laughs> even on more serious things in terms of like sex and identity, because we just haven't talked about it it just keeps happening these same conversations we and same things PSAs. really no have you sat down jeans. and talked to your gen z child about, gen- <laughs> about low-rise jeans because now's the time now is it seriously i i mean like the forget the war on drugs it's all about the, the war on low-rise dreams <laughs> oh my god Oh my God. Cause I, I mean, I, yeah, I was, I was part of the dare program. I say <laughs> dare to resist low rise jeans. Cause that is a fashion <laughs> statement that we, nobody needs to have in their life. Oh my God. We do know how ineffective those dare programs were. So if we did a oh. dare program on <laughs> oh. low rise jeans, I feel like it would be counterintuitive and we would create a generation that is more in tune with low rise jeans than we are today. So look, I was the top dare graduate i gave the speech in my class alice <laughs> i want you to hear me i gave the oh speech God. and i was also the my, my dad must have been horrified because my dad i mean my dad uh used to go christmas shopping on mushrooms so yeah i think he was horrified that i was a top dare graduate yeah i used to get some weird gifts i'll tell you that much but i also was the first kid that smoked weed you know in in, in our class but yeah I, I, if anything dare taught you how to buy drugs where to buy drugs how to buy drugs how not to get caught <laughs> That's how it dare taught you. So, I mean, yes, you're right, Alice. It was not successful. So maybe we should try the opposite with the low rise and maybe tell them how good it. it is. You do should it. do it. It's so good. I miss it so much. And then just start oh walking around with low rise jeans and the muffin top and just like <laughs> pick them up from school with Scare the muffin top. And be like... <laughs> Take them all out for dinner. <laughs> Taco Bill and then. <laughs> Anybody want some rolls? <laughs> <laughs> if every oh, Karen showed up at Applebee's with a muffin top and low-rise jeans, you would be doing a, such a contribution to society. Please. <laughs> Please. May I ask, because we know we have a lot of Karens listening to the show. If your name is Karen or do you identify as a Karen, please <laughs> go to your closet, dig up your low-rise jeans, you know, the ones you lost your virginity in, and uh, <laughs> go to your local Applebee's. <laughs> at least for our future generations. Please. Come on. <laughs> I think we should talk to each other. Uh, history needs to uh, not repeat itself in, in many ways. I was going to say, though, like abortion's a great example in the United States. Mm. You probably can relate too. We get complacent. We think mm-hmm. like that, like there was a, and Alice, you might remember, there was this trend of like, I'm not really a feminist because, you know, like <sighs> I'm just, you know, 
yes, bitch, you are a feminist. Because as soon as we have women or young women saying no longer going to get out there and march or care about women's reproductive rights or just women's rights in general or human rights, really, that's what they are, uh, we're going to have a problem because we've got people waiting just with bated breath to get rid of Roe versus Wade and and just Mm. make it impossible and to basically keep, again, women down. So I think not forgetting is a big problem here, here in the United States. Oh, absolutely. Look, all I'm saying is the U.S. Postal Service is never going to outlaw shipping coat hangers, so I'll be fine. I'll be still in business. Abortions will be legal as long as I'm around. (laughs) Alice and I have brainstormed some... Didn't we brainstorm some coat hanger ideas? Coathangersforkids.com. I own the domain. You're welcome. Oh, dear God. Is this the same kind of logic as the low-rise jeans? You kind of do the opposite to scare people into finally giving you what you want. (laughs) They're like, no, no, it's fine. We'll we'll use coat hangers. And they're like, no, no, it's fine. We'll we'll bring it back. We'll bring it back. It's really interesting in terms of like that idea of like that I am not a feminist um, because one of the texts that I was just working with this week is um, an essay called Why I'm Not a Feminist uh, by someone called Richard and this was written in the 1800s. Huh. Oh. This woman cut all her hair off, uh, you know, wore men's clothing, talked to the police in terms of like because in France at the time, you know, it was illegal to um, – wear trousers if you're a woman actually until the 1970s i believe it was illegal yeah yeah yeah. they kind of it was a law they forgot to change that's a really fun fact for you Eh. (laughs) um but you know she was doing all this stuff and she referred to herself as a man of letters she was writing pornography about cross-dressing and women dressing up as men and fucking men who were dressed as women and she writes an essay called i am not a feminist and why i'm not a feminist and it's this bizarre kind of cognitive dissonance and again that comes around again and again in history that you see happening you know well something now like when America is going through this absolute crisis of in terms of uh, this discussion around women's autonomy and bodily autonomy and I think it always comes after periods of giant crisis like something like the COVID-19 pandemic when we then crave this kind of nostalgic more conservative ideals that's always when these laws come into effect like the abortion that we're seeing uh now these bans on abortion and then those people who are writing they're like why I'm not a feminist when everything is fine and dandy they're like that's gone now (laughs) um but again just this instant like repeating of history yeah It's true, though, because when you're comfortable and you see the extremists of feminism who are out there, there are going to be those detractors who say, well, I'm not a feminist because these people, in my opinion, they feel as if they are going too far. And, you know, historically, you know, we can judge whether or not they are going too far or not or, you know, whatever it is by historical standards. But you're right, though. It is they only come out when they're comfortable. They don't come out when their rights are being attacked. Yeah. Because nowadays, how frequently do you hear those uh, detractors who are stating, well, I'm not a feminist? Absolutely. I mean, granted, you'll hear quite a few of them say, well, I'm more of an egalitarian. <laughs> okay, fine. Classic. <laughs> but I think that's a such an easy position for women, especially, especially white women, Um the fact that we, for a lot of the time, we can live in this kind of dream world of feeling quite equal. And it's so easy to get caught on that. And I think that's why that's a very, uh, that I'm not a feminist is so typical of that very like rich, wealthy white woman, because until you, your sense of safety is challenged, 
there's no need for it. You don't need to be up on arms on Instagram or uh, in politics because you feel safe and you you kind of get this weird sense of like relation to the other side. But that is so uh, it's an illusion. It's it, it's always been a bit of an illusion. Still, like we are, <laughs> you know, if we're not kind of intersectional in our feminism, then it we're means not really nothing. Feminists. Yeah. No, absolutely. I agree. I mean, I, in anthropology, I mean, we talk about this quite a bit when we look at even um, healthcare and we look at death rates when it comes to childbirth. In the United States, we have one of the highest, basically, maternal death rates when it comes to childbirth. But when it comes to women of color, it just skyrockets. Mm. And a lot of it is not listening to complaints. It's being dismissed. It's really terrifying. And, and I, I have a lot of friends that have, have spoken to me about like them having fears about having kids because of this. And, you know, and until every woman is on board for everybody else, it's useless, you know, and white feminism is going to keep kind of going down that path of, okay, you're just out for your own. And as soon as you feel you got like you've got yours, what does it matter? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Natalia, I don't feel comfortable discussing this until we have a Taylor Swift song about it. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so old because I know zero Taylor Swift anything. But I know she's like, she speaks for ever. I feel like she's, she's a song about everything, right? That's her thing. That is. And I all I can say is that Reputation Era should have lasted a lot longer than it did. Taylor Swift's Reputation Era. <laughs> is that an album? Shitty cover, amazing songs. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you on that. Absolutely, 100%. absolutely. I and that is, um, if if you don't know, that is her bad bitch era, and it was wonderful. And the fact it lasted for one album is one thing I can never quite forgive Taylor for. Um, this kind of re-done uh, identification of like, look what you made me do. I am now out for blood. I was living. That was my femme fatale vibe dream. I loved it. I loved it. Um, and as much as her other music is wonderful, I needed more sexy, I'm going to kill you, Taylor. <laughs> Wait, what? Is this an album? Is Reputation an album? Thank you. Okay, you have to help. I'm an old lady. You got to give me, (laughs) you got to help me out. I just, can you mail me a postcard? Because I don't do email. Just just (laughs) send me a carrier pigeon. Just a carrier pigeon of Taylor Swift's best albums. Sexy Taylor coming on L soon. <laughs> I am personally shocked. I mean, whenever I introduce people to I did something bad as a song, Ugh. they are shocked it is Taylor Beautiful. Swift era. Oh my God. That is bad bitch. A hundred ten percent time. That is height of Taylor. And I know everyone um, is loving her like more country down to earth stuff now. However, <laughs> they're wrong. They are wrong. We're allowed to say they're wrong. <laughs> Yeah, they are wrong. It, the, the sexy blacks, the costumes. Oh, it was delicious. Absolutely delicious. It's the only Taylor I'll accept. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'll like it. I listened to a lot of Tori Amos. I was I was that kid. I was, okay. you know, I used to follow Tori. That was my thing. <laughs> I do like the stuff I've heard of Taylor Swift. I, I do enjoy it, but I do like that. I've heard of Taylor Swift. <laughs> I, I heard, I've heard of her. She's a nice chap, right? She's She's cool. She was on that show, yeah. <laughs> she's tall. She's tall. She's blonde. I remember that. No, but I I feel like she's gotten a bad rap because people are always talking about talking shit about how she like wrote songs about exes. And I was like, hey, asshole. Every that's what every song's about. I mean, like, like you're not giving Jimi Hendrix or like 
Well, people used to always joke or like make comments about how she wrote songs. Am I wrong? Is this another? Yeah, no, it, it is true. She used to give her, I was like, that's that's rude. Like, who cares? Like, that's what you do. No, uh, reputation is very much her like response to all of that. That's why oh. I think you'll love it. Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, good. So yeah. she's giving the finger to everyone. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. 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 Go Taylor. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> Just you wait. I'm going to become the biggest Taylor Swift fan. <laughs> Taylor Swift, if you're listening to this uh, show, you are welcome to come on and or your assistant of Taylor Swift. Info at twogirlswomemite.com. Please email us. I love it. I want all the secrets. Speaking of music, by the way, so Mm. I learned something from you I didn't expect. So, okay, Mozart. I need to talk about Mm -hmm. him because if we're going to talk about (laughs) classical music like Taylor Swift, we need to talk about Mozart. So I knew... That uh, Mozart did a piece called uh, Lichtermann in Arscht. Oh, I'm butchering that in German, uh, which translates to lick me in ass uh, in, excuse you, canon B flat major. Yes, which I know is kiss my ass in American, but I didn't know he has an ass feces thing. Did not know that part. No, um, Moats Farts, as I've now decided to call him. I like um, this. It's great. I, I think the, the song is Lick Mish in Marsh, and that's only because someone drilled me for my TikTok in how to say it, and it's now in my head. Um, <laughs> um, but <gasps> it's really fascinating. So he has a series of letters and, yeah, most uh, condemningly uh, towards his first cousin, uh, Mary Ann, um, who he writes the... <laughs> They're really quite fun. They're like playful letters about poo. Mozart and scatology is its own Wikipedia page. And I think that really says all it needs to say. Um, And he wrote these when he was about 21. uh, And there's a lot of um, very fun rhymes and wordplay. You can see he's a genius. And he's using his intellect to write rhymes about pooing. And that is, to me, the ultimate level of intellect. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. But something like the Mozart letters, where he is just, you know, wishing her a good night, shit in your bed with all your might, um, is that that kind of rhyme that he's writing is so indicative of the fact that all these geniuses and famous figures that we've had throughout history are daddy buggers, all of them. Oh my <laughs> There's God. There's something so on he, everyone. <laughs> he was the original scat man. He is. He is. <laughs> scat man. He's the scat man. Um, wow. Okay. I used to have a show called Talking Shit because we talked a lot about poop. And I really wish I'd known more about Mozart's or Mozart's, mm. which, by the way, thank you very much because I love it that. Um, I'm not, <laughs> That's I'm, going I, in the show notes. No, no, no. You, yeah. I always joke that I, I am the shit because I bring the fart um, <laughs> to my much to my mother's chagrin. But that is hilarious, and I do think that there's something to be said. I love that kind of like puerile humor. That to me is when someone can be like that. I mean, I know that when my boyfriend always t- tells me how much he loves my farts. <laughs> Which is, there's nothing sweeter than someone being like, I love it when you fart. And you're just like, wait, what? what? I didn't think this was possible. I have questions. What? Right? Well, he just like, I mean, he just, he just thinks it's cute. It's just like, oh, she farted. That's cute. You know what I mean? Like, but that's, mm. I don't know. I feel like when people are so, ew, it's so disgusting, this and that. It's I, When people are turned off so much, I, I mean, look, I'm not, nobody's turned on. But it's just more like, I, I'm not running from the room. No, I wouldn't say that. I would say a few people are turned on. Well, 
Well, yes, but I'm just saying I'm not. But and no. that's okay if you are. I'm not kink shaming, but uh, no. I'm just saying it's more about not being horrified. And I'm still a a person in his eyes when I when I toot <laughs> when I break wind. Scatology is actually um, in that when uh, pornography emerges, scatology is one of the biggest areas ever. They are obsessed really? with pooing and pissing and farts. It's huge. It's mm. absolutely huge, which is like very shocking, I think. I mean, a lot of people read the pornography by um, Le Marquis de Sade, most famously, mm-hmm. and most of his work is about anal sex and shitting. And it was huge. It was, and it's always kind of been huge. There's loads of poo jokes in Shakespeare's work as well um, that a lot of people, um, but we, we've kind of moved away and now have this conception again of it being really quite gross. But the grotesque and everything was kind of always there, but it was a lot more bodily accepting, I guess, in that sense. I don't know. I study monkeys, so I feel like I have this innate. <laughs> and I, I, I've always like I, my brother. I call my brother fart eater. He used to call me fart master as a joke. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't know. I just think there's something to be said for being able to have fun with it. The sexual thing is the interesting thing, which I would like to read more, maybe of Marquis de Sade, because I don't, I don't know a bunch of. Yeah. I mean, like I get it with anal, of course, but like I mean now with <laughs> anal porn, it's just like everyone's got la douche. <laughs> No, but like, I suppose, I mean, bringing it back to the podcast, that two girls, one cup, that's what all a lot of 18th century pornography is about. A Ah. lot of that, a lot of Ah. um, like descriptions of, you know, women in uh, sex houses being told to come into a room, uh, (laughs) spread their cheeks and shit on a person. That was, you know, something that people would pay a pretty high price for. Um, They loved it. I want to know, though, how much prep goes into the sex worker? It's like, do you know you're going to shit ahead of time? And how far ahead of time do you know this yeah well i mean if a lot of the 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 fiction or descriptions is to be taken as truth sometimes what they would do is um tell the sex worker um either they were coming in the next day or sometimes you know as much as like five days ahead Um, and the ones who could pay a lot would sometimes pay for the the sex worker to eat like fibers or whatever kind of corn uh, suits their palate um because apparently it all has different tastes and that is something I have learned in my research which I didn't want to know um but if you could pay you would get them to very seriously prepare for this depending on your palate and your consistency um that you desire um so yes generally they would have warning <laughs> Wow. Well, that makes sense because I cannot shit on command. No, absolutely. Most I mean, people I don't cannot. Know if many people can. <laughs> I had a friend that I knew who was a dominatrix who said that every time she pooped in a toilet, it was $200 literally down the drain because she could have <laughs> just defecated on some soul who really wanted that to happen. Clearly, we haven't been marketing this podcast well enough. And if you're interested, please don't email us. I'm not interested in trying to get that through the U.S. Postal Service. It's not going to work well. But Esme, thank you so much for joining us. Where can our listeners find more of you? Please feel free to uh, follow me on uh, TikTok for more of these very fun, scandalous lessons from the past, um, which is esme.louise, E-S-M-E dot L-O-U-I-S-E-E. And also on Instagram, I post a lot of uh, content um, and uh, these engravings uh, of the pornography uh, that I've been speaking about today. I post those all uh, for your enjoyment. So please feel free to enjoy. Amazing. Uh, Natalia, where can our listeners find more of you? 
Well, first of all, Esme, I think you're freaking amazing. And I can't wait to either talk to you again or somehow get to Australia, uh, either via a whale or a koala with chlamydia. So whatever to talk to you about this, (laughs) because I think you're fascinating. Uh, You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Natalia13Reagan. If you want to hear more anthropology-themed podcasts, uh, you can find me on Star Trek All Stars. And uh, if you want to take a biological anthropology class, come to Liam College in the Bronx. And by the way, you guys can follow me, Alice, at Rational Blonde on all platforms, but you can find the podcast at plenty of places, at TGOM Podcast. But of course, you could follow us on Patreon, where you can get a full video of this. Uh, Like, tell your friends, comment, leave us a review. But of course, check us out next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.